I'm Brittany Wilson. And I'm Nia Wasink. And this is The The Nonprofit Nonprofit Reframe. Reframe. Brittany Wilson over here is a badass fundraising extraordinaire. She has done everything from tiny little nonprofits to multi-million dollar budgets. She's the fundraising maven. I don't know if I can top that, but Nia Wasink can, being the owner and principal of Mission Launch, a nonprofit consulting firm here in Colorado. She's been executive director. She's been development director. She's done all the roles, and she has all the knowledge. So welcome, Nia. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Nonprofit Reframe. This is Nia. And this is Brittany. What are we talking about today, Britt? Today, we are, this episode has been inspired by a community member who sent me an email last week. You know, it's the end of the year, and it's a time when a lot of people and families especially are thinking about giving back and how they can make a difference in this world. I wish that we had this same sentiment all year long, um, but at least we have this time, and it's a an opportunity to capitalize on that and bring in new volunteers and new donors. But when I got this email, it made me think about some of the misconceptions that people have. So, uh, Brittany, what was in this email you got? So the email was from a supporter in the community who wants to teach their children more about giving, which I think is amazing. Sounds awesome. Um, It's something that I have really wanted to start doing with my kids. Um, I have two daughters, two young daughters. We talk a lot at home about what I do for work, but we're always trying to look at ways to plug them into the work itself so they can see it and it can actually be an experience for them. But it's hard. Not a lot of nonprofits have opportunities for kids to volunteer. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that with your work? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and so often... Um, I mean, you know this, you end up creating activities for young folks so they can see the work and it's actually not meaningful help. (laughs) Well, no, it just creates more work for staff. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and I get asked this just by friends all the time. Hey, Mm -hmm. you know, my family wants to do a service project. Do you know of anything? Mm -hmm. Um, so this person wants to do the same thing. They looked on our website and they couldn't find the volunteer opportunities, Um, Something to note, Uh, but what they did, (laughs) I mean, they're there, but anyways, they didn't see them, but what they wanted to do, what they did see is a way to donate, Mm -hmm. which actually, as a fundraiser, makes me feel really good. I know, claps for that. I know, they found the donate button, so that was great. (laughs) Um, But their concern is that they don't want to teach their children to, quote unquote, throw money at a problem. Um, And their other concern is that they don't feel like they have enough money to make a difference, so they're willing to give their time and their voice. I literally had that exact conversation with my father last night. Interesting. So my dad and I chat weekly. He lives out of state, and uh, he was asking me how Giving Tuesday went, and I said... Giving what? (laughs) Basically. Um, But I said, so who did you give to, Dad? And he was like, oh, I couldn't this week, da-da-da-da-da. And I said, you know you don't have to give a large gift, right? Any size gift is actually pretty meaningful right now. And then I went into a bunch more detail about that. And I think it was the first time that he really understood that we're not just talking about major donors these days. We need a lot of different kinds of donors. And for whatever reason, that that message is not getting out. 
I know, and that's what broke my heart by reading this email. I mean, yes, okay, I recognize that you want to teach your children to get out and do the work and to volunteer and give it their time, and I think that's commendable. I do. But I also think that there is death of giving happening right now among the majority of the population. Well, and not to go too wonky on you, but this is something that I'm pretty fired up about right now. We know, we have data about the shrinking number of small and mid-sized donors. And, you know, we get these annual reports, Giving USA and um, those types of things that show that philanthropy is pretty steady. Well, that's because our, our big donors are actually making up for the loss in small donors. And many of you might say, well, that's fine, right? That, sure, I want that $100,000 gift. Right. Well, the, what that means, though, is that philanthropy now is in the hands of an increasing small number of people. And those people, the people with the wealth who are giving these major philanthropic gifts, tend to give to the same kinds of places. And let me tell you, those are not your local shelters, the, the, the local groups doing the important work in your community. They're the colleges, the universities, the mm-hmm. hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the DAFs. I mean, in the last five years, the money, the, the, the amount of assets and donor advised funds has gone up 73% in this country. That's incredible. So when you've got one type of person, t- typically, I, I'm obviously making a generalization there. there. There are plenty of other people who have wealth, but we know the majority of them are a certain type of person and they're giving to certain types of charities. And I... Quite frankly, I don't want the Jeff Bezoses of the world telling my community what's important. Yep. I want my neighbor down the street who's giving to the same nonprofit I'm giving to because we both care and think it's an important part of our community. Well, did you just see that episode on the Patriot Act? Ooh, I loved that episode on the Patriot Act. If you don't follow that show, definitely check it out, especially the last episode. It's on Netflix and it's back about big philanthropy, which speaks exactly to this point. And one of the examples that they gave in that episode, which I thought was so poignant, was um, around Bill and Melinda Gates in Washington really pushing for charter schools and how over and over and over again, and this isn't to say anything necessarily wrong with Bill and Melinda Gates. Look, we know that they have given so much money and have made big strides in a lot of areas across the world. But this is an example of how they have used their money and their influence to change the offerings and the education system in a particular state. And so here they had, you know, the voters time and time again had voted down charter schools and they just pumped more and more money into advertisements and lobbying for it until it eventually passed. Mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. I I tell my clients uh, regularly, I would much rather have $1,000 donors who are really committed to our mission than a $1,000 one-off donation. I know those those 10 families are going to take more work, right? Because it's 10 versus one. Sure. Um, we're going to have to keep them involved and engaged. But now we have 10 people who support the work we're doing. So if we have something come in front of city council, I've got 10 people who could potentially back us instead of one. I've got 10 people who can tell their networks about what we're doing instead of one. I've got 10 who could be potential volunteers. And, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on. But our small and mid-sized donors are absolutely critical for our nonprofits right now. 
Well, and again, to go back to the email, that is the part that broke my heart, is that they said, we can't afford to give enough to, quote unquote, make an impact. Mm -hmm. And that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. That's just wrong. And honestly, as a fundraiser, I'm going to tell you right now, when you're working for an organization that has a deficit, every dollar counts. Oh, absolutely. And so we want your $10. Mm -hmm. And yes, we also would love to have your time and your volunteerism and all that's great too. But the fact of the matter is, is that we need to be able to be hitting our budgets in order to keep these programs going. And if we don't get money in the door, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so we need people to really be generous with their money, even if that's only five, ten, fifteen, twenty dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I will say I love the part about teaching philanthropy young to oh, kids. I love it. Um, actually, you'll know this because I've done this to your daughters. Uh, if a kid wants money from me for a fundraiser, I make them call me on the phone and ask. I know, I love it. Well, because we need to teach them. Like, if, if there's something you're passionate about, kiddo, great. Call Aunt Nia up. She would love to give. But you're going to have to actually call and ask her. And that's my PSA right now. If you have kids and they have a fun run or they're selling, uh, they're doing laps, you know, for money and they're calling their families or they're supposed to get money from their families and their friends, make them do it. Yeah. Have them do it. So I know my daughter's school, she, I thought this was fantastic. They, well, first of all, they had a platform that was very easy for everybody to give. And then they encouraged every student to ask 10 people mm -hmm. that they were going to do a fun run and you need to ask 10 people. And so I told my daughter, okay, let's lay out who you're going to talk to and then you need to call and ask them. She was so good. I said, <laughs> you have a job for life, kid. You have taught her well. <laughs> keep, keep this up. If you don't have a problem talking about money or asking for money, go for it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I'm working with so many clients every day trying to get them less scared of fundraising. I am trying to break this habit that they have been taught since they were children that they shouldn't ask for money, that it's scary to ask for money. But if we can teach them both the power of philanthropy and also the power of asking for missions you care about Absolutely. when they're kids, then they'll never develop that fear. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, I know I always joke that I'm kind of the worst friend or worst person to be around because I'm a fundraiser, so I talk about money all the time. I have a master's degree in comparative religion, so I'll talk theology all day to anybody. <laughs> and I'm not religious. I just really love talking about different traditions. And um, I'm, you know, pretty passionate about politics. So and all you're the, an Ohio State fan. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a Buckeye. And you know people from Ohio love to talk about things from Ohio. God, don't I know that. <laughs> so, you know, all those faux pas subjects that you're not supposed to bring up at parties, I'm the first one talking about them. And that's what this is about. Let's talk about it because it's the truth. If we want to continue to have these amazing organizations hold up the most vulnerable in our community because it's not happening through other social systems, then we need to support them. Snaps for that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of being the worst person at a dinner party, uh, 
I was that person earlier this week. Oh, no. What happened? <laughs> so I was with um, some other folks who I know are civically involved. They're, they're in nonprofits or volunteers or board members. So I felt like it was a safe space, but I had just watched that episode of Patriot Act. Yeah. And I, I've already read the book, Winner Take All, yep. uh, which is so powerful. Amazing book. Oh, my gosh. Go get it. Um, it, it's a subject that I, I could wonk out on anyway, but it's obviously something I'm very passionate about. And so somebody brought up something even tangentially related. I think it was just like year on giving. And I went in deep. <laughs> just like, this is why things are wrong with philanthropy and dafts. And, and by the end, you know, people are like grabbing their wine glasses and slowly wandering away. But it's so true. I know. I have done the exact same thing. I think this podcast isn't helping. <laughs> no, it is Because not. my soapbox has been following me around everywhere I've been lately. And I just jump on top of it and I start preaching. There's a lot to preach about. There's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. And getting back to DAFs and how they're um, kind of this double-edged sword. I mean, it is great that people have this mechanism where they can give money into, but what are they doing with that money? Sitting on it. Nothing. Well, actually, did you see this week in the news um, what Schwab Charitable did? No. So they are one of the largest holders of donor-advised funds across the country. They, um, and, and any um, organization like Schwab, like your local community foundation, anybody who holds the donor-advised funds, they have a certain level of due diligence. So if... You say you want to give to an organization, the um, the foundation has to research and make sure that they're an eligible 501c3 and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so Schwab came back and pulled um, all their outgoing contributions from NRA and NRA-related organizations. Really? Now, of course, they've come under a lot of fire for this because people assume that it's actually because of the work they do, but it's because they're under investigation by the IRS. Uh-huh. But it's an important thing to note that... You know, there is a really important role that those DAF fund holders have to ensure that funds are being used well. Some will go further. Um, there was a group out east that said that they would stop um, allowing contributions to organizations that were anti-immigrant. Wow. So they can take real social stances, and I don't think enough of them are. Yeah. I mean, the money gets put into these DAFs, and then they can go out to basically any qualified 501c3. Yeah, because technically, I mean, once the person puts the money into the DAF, while they can direct it, it's no longer their money. It's not their money anymore. Nope. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how many times we're going to say this on the podcast, but I feel like it's going to be a lot. The house is on fire right now. Yes. Shout out to Goulet for that. Exactly. Metaphor. But it is, we it love is so him. true. The house is on fire, and if we don't do something right now, the entire block is going to be on fire in minutes. And so all that money, all that wealth that has been already earmarked for charitable purposes, but is just sitting, really probably making money yep. for the banks in which they're in, mm-hmm. we need to be using that money now. Mm-hmm. Well, and here's one of the conflicts, right? So, so many of these charitable entities one of their markers of success is is how large their asset pool is. So when they can come back and say, we have 100 new donor-advised funds, and that houses a million extra dollars, that looks good for them as a, as a foundation or, or whatever kind of entity they are. So there's no incentive for them to then get their DAF holders to push funds out. Yeah. And the IRS has no regulation around it. Private foundations have to distribute 5% annually. DAF funds... But only 5%. Right. Well, yeah, that's a whole issue in and of itself. 
But for DAFs, there's nothing. Yeah. So uh, I was actually talking to somebody recently who asked me to help them with some um, philanthropic advising and to start working with their kids because they expect their DAF to still be full when they pass away. Oh, wow. And my immediate response back was, that's wonderful that you're trying to set your kids up to be philanthropic. What if you spent the funds in your lifetime, though? What if you made investments now in nonprofits so you could actually see them utilize the funds and do incredible works with them? Well, not only that, but then it's going to be showing their children philanthropy in action. Right. Right? So look at this. We have made this money. Now we're setting it aside for these charitable purposes. Now we're putting it into action. Look what we were able to do as a family. And so they can do the same thing. Yes. Yes. They don't have to spend your money. Mm -hmm. They can spend their own because you have showed them how it's done and you've made it a value of the family. Exactly. Which then all comes back to this email, right? Starting them young and teaching them the value of philanthropy developing how that is an important part of their life and and their lifestyle even. Uh, I will immediately throw my husband under the bus because uh, his parents actually, I think they are incredibly, incredibly civically involved. They volunteer a ton. Somehow that missed him. I, I, I don't know how, but he is the least philanthropic person I've ever met. We've been married 11 years and every year I sit with him and say, who do you want to give to this year? What, 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 what's intre- of interest to you? We have three cats. He loves cats, but apparently doesn't want to give to cats. (laughs) I I mean, we spend so much time, and he he has no idea who we give to because I'm just left with all the decision-making. Well, now that you say that, it's making me reflect on my childhood. And, you know, my family, I would categorize as a very giving family, but we never had those conversations. That was not a practice. I don't know if it's because we were growing up in the Midwest or we're just Midwest, Midwest, (laughs) sorry, accent coming out, or um, we are, we're just a middle-class family. But that's my point is that, you know, even regardless of your family's income, if you're able to pay your bills, bills and you're able to meet your basic needs and then some Mm -hmm. and you it doesn't matter how much it is it's the concept of giving back Mm -hmm. um well and it's so funny i was listening to this podcast earlier today and they were even i'm curious of what your thought about that they were talking about how even just the giving back is not even such a great term for it yeah because it assumes a transaction right exactly something and now i'm gonna give back exactly but um again it goes back to the fact that if we want these organizations to be able to continue the services that people are relying on people in your own community are relying on then we need to help support that as a community Mm -hmm. i was actually working with a client recently they do um uh homelessness services of a wide range um, from emergency to longer term housing and they started providing an opportunity for people when they're making um rent um checks to include a small donation Oh. And at first, you know, the staff are like, oh my gosh, why, why are you asking our people for donations? Go, go ask the rich people. Um, and we were able to pivot and say, actually, it's a really empowering thing to say, even if it's an extra $2 a month, I believe in the work you're doing. And so I want to donate. I want to be part of that philanthropic class. Yes. 
right? It isn't just the wealthy who get to decide what charities are worthy. Me, going through this program, I recognize the benefit and I want to support that. That's like, awesome. I think we need to recognize that there's real empowerment in, in philanthropy as well. I know. I just want a new rebirth of giving to happen, and Ooh, I'm not sure how that happens. That. Yeah. Rebirth of giving. Rebirth of giving. Um, hashtag rebirth of giving. Um, no, just kidding. So, <laughs> but I really do. I, I, I mean, I know that I am biased. I've worked in this sector my entire career. I'm so passionate about it. I've seen the work firsthand. I don't know what communities would do without these organizations. And I just feel that it is everybody's duty to do that. And maybe that's wrong. And I recognize everybody has different financial situations. But if you're in a place where you can make that gift, no matter what size, I think we should, because otherwise these organizations are going to crumble and we're going to have a lot bigger social problems on our hands. Mm -hmm. Can we go back to the email for a minute and yes. talk about the um, the part where they say they, they uh, what, don't want to throw money in it, right? Like this sense yes. of wanting to volunteer instead of... Thank you for bringing that back up. What do you think about that? Oh, gosh, that just kills me. Um, and reaffirms our decision to do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's just such a misconception. It is not throwing money at a problem. It is fueling a solution. Fueling a solution. Man, we have all of our merch figured out right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag fueling a solution. <laughs> but it's so true. And I, I think this gets back to the, um, the whole like money is such a taboo thing. So throwing money at a problem seems dirty. Right. When actually that money is absolutely critical and part of this bigger picture and you can be part of it through your contributions. And I just, I want people to stop thinking in those contexts. Me too. Me too. Preach. I, I, you know, we could probably do a whole nother episode on people's relationship with money and how that, that impacts. Down. Yeah. Put that down. <laughs> Podcast topic number 352. But so... I, in that spirit and in this time of year, just want to come back and say, you know, if you are, you know, able to and have the means, whatever those means are, please consider, give where your heart is. I mean, think about, there's, then that's the thing. There's so many different amazing organizations out there. If you have cats and you love cats, Nia's husband, who should be giving to cat charities, <laughs> You know, you have that option, and um, you can make it such a fabric and a, a, a value within the fabric of your family. Mm -hmm. I also want to say, I think this is a call out to our nonprofit folks. We have focused so much on major donors yep. that we forget our low and mid-range donors. So as you're thinking about how you're going to acknowledge people giving smaller gifts, as you think about your stewardship plans for next year... Make sure you have a plan to to really ensure that these donors are um, are brought into your mission, into your programs. I mean, we see massive donor attrition, um, and and that is especially true of our lower and mid range donors. So please, please, please work to bring them in. Work to find opportunities to give them that that special touch. And I, I know it. it's harder the larger you are and the <clears throat> more number of donors you have, but bring in your board, bring in your program staff into it. We make it an opportunity to really appreciate them. I love it. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This concludes our episode, and we will see you next time. <laughs> I don't know. How do we end it? Uh, this concludes the recording <laughs> at the tone. <laughs> Uh, we'll say it again. Please uh, subscribe. Follow us on socials. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, at Nonprofit Reframe. You can email us at nonprofitreframe at gmail.com. It doesn't matter what generation you're in. We have the social channel for you. So check us out. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Mission Launch, a Colorado-based nonprofit consulting firm focusing on fundraising and board governance. You can learn more at missionlaunchco.com. And Jake Walker Music, who provides our theme music. You can find him at jakewalkermusic.org. Thank you so much. Hey, Nia here. Uh, We have our first of many corrections. Uh, in this episode, I mistakenly called this incredible book Winner Takes All, and it's actually Winners Take All. The subtitle is The Elite Charade of Changing the World. It's by Anand Giradhadas. You can find out more with the link in the show notes. I definitely recommend getting it. Thanks.